related. I this am... is Ryan Whedon. You got it. And I'm Matt Fisher. And I'll be your host this evening with uh, Ryan sitting silently next to me. Yeah, podcast isn't really a good forum for mine. <laughs> Maybe we should scratch this uh, We didn't really think this through, did we? <laughs> All right. Well, let's... Different gimmick next week. What's the rumpus, Matt? Uh, you know, same old, same old, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Did you gain any superpowers today? Dur- during the supernatural event? Uh-huh. Uh, I gained the ability to have spots in my eyes. <laughs> I looked at the sun, even though they tell you not to do it. It was like, a, I, I figured I'm You were better. just following the president's lead. <laughs> I figured I could do a quick, like, glance up and glance down, which I did, and immediately, you know, my eyes were, holes were burned into them. It's like when you see someone hot in the locker room at the gym. <laughs> just a quick glance look away. <laughs> uh, but the after image when I closed my eyes were, was of an eclipse sun, <laughs> so I feel like I kind of saw it. Uh, yeah. It, part of me wishes, because some of my friends went to Oregon and, like, camped out and, like, Went to, like, a beautiful spot to be in the path of totality. Yeah, yeah. And part of me wishes I would have done that, but also walking to work, because I timed my walk to work to be, like, during peak coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of cool walking through a familiar place with, like, this different lighting on it. Yeah. With, you know... It was definitely kind of cool being in a familiar spot in an unfamiliar light. Agreed. Yes. I'm kind of glad to get all this total eclipse stuff behind us. Did you listen to Bonnie Tyler while looking at the eclipse? No. What is a total eclipse of the heart? <laughs> yeah, good question. Is What's your heart eclipse? behind the sun or in front of it? Uh, I guess your heart would be the sun, and then something's blocking out your heart. <laughs> that sounds like a medical problem yeah (laughs) nurse give me five cc's of something we've got a total eclipse of the heart over here you know how many americans we lose to a total eclipse of the heart every year uh if if it's for every person who does it at karaoke uh i do have an idea (laughs) sad sad hashtag sad hashtag sad so yes What'd you watch this week? Uh, I watched uh, you watching Baby Driver. <laughs> oh yeah, we watched the movie together this week. We did. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we both saw Baby Driver. Indeed. Uh, at the cinema. And uh, yeah, it was alright. I enjoyed it. I liked it too. Um, I don't remember his name, but Little Twinkie Boy was easy on the eyes. Ansel Elgort? <laughs> Least Twinkie name, but... <laughs> I couldn't help but think, like, what the movie, how the movie would be different if he was a black character. Like, if him and Jamie Foxx switched roles? Yeah. Yeah, because Jamie Foxx was kind of the bad guy. Yeah, like, allegiances shifted, Uh but he was the one that was consistently not on board with Baby. Yeah. And tried to back Baby into a corner. And Baby's stepdad was black. Yeah. So I was... I, not stepdad, it was foster father, Oh, right? foster father, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking, like, why why couldn't he have just been a, a black character? That seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I don't know. Hmm. 
It does seem like it was uh, sort of asking for that, but... Yeah. But, I mean, it didn't, like, diminish my, my enjoyment of the movie. It was just something I was questioning. I guess it was just, you know, it was trying to be in line with, you know, other Drive-related movies like Drive or The Driver. <laughs> uh, with strong, silent, white male types mm -hmm. as the lead. Mm -hmm. Triple feature? Drive, The Driver, Baby Driver? <laughs> Except The Driver is not actually a very good movie. Oh, God. It Yeah, it's a little... Lackluster. I like drive. Uh, there's not a lot of driving in it, though. Yeah, didn't somebody demand their money back because there wasn't enough driving in drive? Yeah, someone thought it was going to be like a Fast and the Furious movie. And, yeah, was not pleased with that. I'd say there was a decent amount of driving in Baby Driver, though. Yeah, it delivered on that. Not enough babies, though. <laughs> yeah. I, I was mean, pretty disappointed in the in the small amount of babies. Well, don't worry. Our next episode is going to be the Garbage Pail Kids. So. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say that documentary, Babies, that just follows babies around. No, I haven't actually seen that one. I haven't either, but I do know that in Lindy West's review, the tagline was, Babies is baby porn. <laughs> Wait, that came out wrong. <laughs> unpopular opinion? I don't find babies that adorable. Oh, me neither. It's not an unpopular opinion in this company. <laughs> Give me a movie about puppies or kitties or... Yeah. Ducklings. Sure. Um, Goslings. Yeah. Narrated by Ryan Gosling. Yeah, he can be in it too. Sure. Bring your whole family, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Although, what if, yeah, because if, it, if there was a movie called Goslings, and I showed up, and it was did not include Ryan Gosling and his immediate family, I would demand my money back. <laughs> Maybe we should make a habit of demanding our money back for going into movies with wrong expectations. Yeah. Let's see how many... Let's get a scorecard going. Like a baby driver. Not one baby drove in that movie. <laughs> I want my money back. Uh -huh. Blade Runner? 20, yeah. 2049? I can think of two things wrong with this movie title. <laughs> Did you watch anything other than Baby Driver? I did, but I don't know if I want to talk about it. Alright, lay it on me. How pornographic and how much? I just ended up... So, two episodes ago we talked about the electric grandmother. <laughs> and a quick YouTube search found it online, available to watch. So, I decided, let's go down Childhood Lane and rewatched it. Nothing cures nostalgia like time travel. Wow. It was... First of all, it's 45 minutes long. I remember it being much, much longer. Okay. Um, Maureen Stapleton is the electric grandmother, okay. and she sings in it. The oldest brother is played by the older brother from E.T. I don't know the actor's name. Oh, okay. But he's in it. It was written by Ray Bradbury, It's oh. based on, and it's based on one of his short stories. Sure, he wrote a lot of those. It was bizarre. Anyway, never need to watch that again. It wasn't the uh, enthralling romp you were hoping it to be? No, and in fact, it almost feels like... A movie made for grandmothers. Oh, really? In that, yeah, it's just super nostalgic and... I, I mean, a lot of people make this mistake, but I am not part of that demographic. <laughs> I mean, who knew that was a demo to uh, be chasing down? I forgot a part where somebody asks her a question and she's like, click, 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 click. She's like, bing, reach in my pocket. And he pulls out a muffin. And inside the muffin is, like, her response to the question, like, on a piece of paper. So that she just, like... 
print like prints out baked goods somehow. What was the question? Can you get me a muffin? <laughs> she was like, what was I saying at four something this afternoon? I almost said four twenty this afternoon. <laughs> and the muffin comes out and says, "Let's get baked." <laughs> I didn't get the reference as a kid, but now, now I get it. Movie today is Miller's Crossing. Written and directed by the Coen brothers. Yep. It was from 1990. Yep. Uh, director of photography, Barry Sonnenfeld, who went on to direct the Men in Black movies. That's right. And I feel that uh, this is sort of overlooked in the Cohen catalog. It was a flop when it came out, because it came out like two weeks after uh, Goodfellas. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I can kind of see why this would be a flop. Like, it's not like a Rip Roaring movie. No. Especially in comparison to Goodfellas. Yeah. Uh, which is like... Rock and roll start to finish, basically. Yeah. It's, you know, two and a half hours, but... And just, you know, mobster movie fatigue. Maybe it was yeah. a thing in 1990. Uh, but that's too bad. I mean, I, I love Goodfellas. I'm not going to badmouth that movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, it is a shame when stuff gets overshadowed because something else is so popular. Yeah, indeed. Um, but this... You know, it's a gangster movie, decidedly more low-key. Uh, was sort of... I feel like there's three separate camps, all with their own sets of values and ideals in the movie. Okay. That are all sort of conflicting you with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got the beginning. Uh, the scene itself looked very godfathery. to Indeed. me. The, yeah, yeah. the opening scene from The Godfather. Uh, you got the Italian mobster, mm-hmm. Johnny Casper... Uh, you have the Irish, uh, Gabriel Byrne and Albert Finney, mm-hmm. uh, on the one side, and then you have, uh, the Jewish people, Verna and Bernie Birnbaum. Right. And they all kind of have, like, each of them are sort of their own camp, I right. feel. And I feel like that was by design. Like, I mean, this was definitely at a time when being one of those things was sort of a big deal. Right. Like, we don't care nowadays if you're Irish or Italian right. like, or Jewish, like, nobody cares. Uh, but back then, people cared kind of a lot. Yeah. Um, so it seems it wasn't happenstance that these, or that they randomly assigned these identities to these characters. It was very much by design, I feel. And it takes place during Prohibition, sometime during Prohibition, in some unknown town. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know the, exactly the city. We don't know exactly the year, but um, roughly 1920s. Yeah, America, somewhere in America. Um, so you had the, these factions and. Just sort of uh, the conflicts that arise when there's a power struggle going on, essentially. Yeah, it's like uh, everything's kind of going along swimmingly until um, Bernie comes along. Bernie, Bernie, yeah, yeah. That, Bernie comes along and kind of starts character. throwing these throwing these bets, and um, uh, Casper's upset, and so he's like, comes to Leo saying, "I want to kill this guy." So I, the, the <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> the opening scene. It's sort of interesting because Casper's talking about ethics. I'm talking about ethics. You know I'm a sporting man. 
I like to lay the occasional bet, <laughs> but I ain't that sporting. When I fix a fight, say I uh, pay a three to one favor to throw a goddamn fight, I figure I got the right to expect that fight to go off at three to one. But every time I lay a bet with a son of a bitch, Bernie Birnbaum, before I know it, the odds is even up. Or worse, I'm betting on the short money. The Sheeny knows I like short things. He's selling the information. I fixed the fight. Out of town money comes pouring in. The odds go straight to hell. I don't know who's selling to it. Maybe the Los Angeles combine. I don't know. The point is, Bernie ain't satisfied with the honest dollar he can make off the pig. He ain't satisfied with the business I do on his book. He is selling tips on how I bet. And that means part of the payoff that should be riding on my hip is riding on someone else's. So, back we go to these questions. Friendship, character, ethics. There's a good line where he's like, am I clear? And then Leo goes, as mud. Which is kind of how I felt about a lot of the dialogue in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of like the instigating incident, right? Like, he says, I want to kill this guy. Is that okay? Do I have your blessing? And he says, no, I'm going to protect him. And then... Cards start to fall from there. And we, we find out that it's because Leo is sleeping with Verna. Right. Is in love with her, essentially. And Verna is Bernie's sister. sister. Mm-hmm. And she is purposely using Leo and his power and his influence to make sure that Bernie is protected. Right. Because he's gay. Yes. Which is... Sort of revealed... Really buried. <laughs> yeah, they don't explicitly say it. Yeah, they never do. It's all subtext. Uh, and, like, quotation marks. There, There is just sort of a... They'll say things like, oh, he's Bernie's boy. Right. And it's sort of, like, with a wink and a nudge. We're amigos. Yeah. Wink, wink. But it, and, really, I forgot about that. Yeah, I, I didn't not... catch it. I, okay, I'm a... Cards on the table. Um, I watched this movie twice because mm. I watched it the first time for, for the podcast here and was like... Man, I don't know if I got everything. So I read the plot synopsis, okay. rewatched it, and basically went through scene by scene because it's so dense. Like, it, and it gets more dense as it goes yeah, along. It is. It starts off complicated, and it just it's like every scene is so compact and and dense, and people's motivations change from scene to scene. Yeah, like it's really it's kind of a difficult through line to follow because almost everybody in this movie doesn't say what they mean. Like, yeah. I feel like every line is actually subtext of something else. Like, everybody's coded. Um, and on top of that, they're using lingo that's different. Yes. Like, so it's, that's a difficult entry bar, I guess is what, is what I'm saying. So it's like, my first time through, I felt frustrated. Mm. I really, was my main kind of takeaway at the end. This is the first time in a long time where I've been watching a movie and I'm like, wait, who, which side is that guy on? Yeah. Wait, why is he doing that? Like, the, I haven't felt like sort of like I'm trying to keep up with a movie in a long time. When I was younger, I used to feel that way all the time. Right. You know, I, I couldn't tell when things like that had changed. And I, and I don't know if that's like a change in movie making, if just the way that things are presented now are much more obvious mm -hmm. and, you know, they've determined that audiences don't like being confused. <laughs> yeah. So they don't do that anymore. Or if it's just something unique to this movie that it's so dense and that there's so many twists and turns, especially as you go, like it, yeah. it really starts going back and forth. 
it's a, I mean, second time through was rewarding, but it definitely took like pausing after each scene and then being like, okay, what has changed now? What is happening? What's I'm, going on? Going into the next scene, what's going to be the? I'm really video? glad that you felt that way because I, <laughs> when I was sitting at home watching, I was like, man, this like you need to pay attention to this movie. Like yeah. you can't casually or passively watch this. You need to like watch and listen to know what's going on. Right, and it's difficult. Like, well, for example, when they the only reveals of like Mink being in a relationship with like the Dane, it happens in the first scene. Uh, Mink is Eddie Dane's boy. Of course, the Dane always knows about the fix. And what the hell is that supposed to mean? Let it drift. All it means is a lot of people know. That's all we know. Yeah. It's kind of explicit once you know going into it. Um, and then the scene with uh, Steve Buscemi, who's playing the mink, yes. is actually kind of like cheating with Bernie on the Dane. Yeah. He's a fast talker. Yeah, Tom, that's right, but a guy could have more than one friend, can he? I mean, not that I want the Dane to know about it, but a square G like the Shimada, he's the right guy, Tom. He's a square shooter. I know he's got a mixed reputation, but for a sheen, he's got a lot of good qualities. So, man, if you don't really sit and listen and realize what's going on, it's just, foo, right over your head. Yeah. And I missed it totally the first time through. It's tough. You know, this is the second time that I've seen the movie, and even then, I'm like, I know how this ends. Like, I know what's going on here, but... It had been so long that I couldn't remember specifically what happened. And then even inside of, like, knowing the broad strokes or how things get from point A to point B, there's just so much that goes on. There's so much back and forth that you really have to watch what's happening. Well, like, yeah, for example, we there's a murder that happens early on, and that's uh, this character named The Rug, who we don't ever meet. We only meet him when he's dead. Yeah. And he's called that because he has a toupee. And there's, like... Three or four different people that we think kill him throughout the movie. Leo thinks Casper did it. Casper poop rug. And then later, Tom thinks Verna did it. Why would I, or my brother, kill Rug Daniels or anybody else? And then I think Tom even makes the case after a point that the Dane did it. It don't make sense. Why would he? That could be a damn good reason. But then we find out in the very end, the person who finally did it is Mink. What did Mink shoot Rug anyway? I don't know. It's just a mix-up. Because he was worried about getting caught by the Dane having sex with Bernie. Bernie. So it's like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one, the, the crucial, one of the crucial parts in the movie is Tom, after failing to get Leo to, to give up Bernie. Mm-hmm sort of switches sides. He's looking for work and he goes to Casper for work. Right. And Casper agrees to it, but on the condition that, you know, Bernie has to be given up. Which he does immediately. Yeah. So he does that. And this gets to like, and also like very morally ambiguous part because Tom, Gabriel Byrne, is ostensibly our hero, but he gives up Bernie. He knows that giving up Bernie is going to kill him. Mm Mm-hmm. They go to Miller's Crossing, which is this place in the middle of the woods, uh, and he's instructed to uh, kill him. You know, first shot knocks him down, and then you put the second shot in his brain. Right. Is, is the instruction that he's given. Tom didn't bargain that he would be the one doing the killing. Right. So he goes out, he fires shots, but he doesn't kill Bernie. It kind of portrays it like he's being merciful, but really, it's just that Tom doesn't want to have that on his hands. And I'm not, I don't know if it's 
just because he doesn't want to, or if he knows that that would make things go sour with Verna. Mm-hmm. But Bernie was gonna die, and he was okay with it until he was the one that had to do it. Right. So it, it gets real morally ambiguous for me, because it's, it's like, he was fine with someone else killing Bernie, mm-hmm. but he's not okay killing Bernie. Every choice in this movie has repercussions that don't go the way people want them to, I guess. I mean, that's classic Coen Brothers. Yeah. Is, every movie is basically there are unintended consequences yeah. that people didn't foresee. So to jump back a little bit, when Casper puts out the hit on Leo mm-hmm. at his home and they uh, shoot the person in like the floor below Leo. Right. And the guy falls over. He had like a cigar or a cigarette that was lit. Starts a fire. Leo's in bed and he sees smoke coming up from the floorboards. Yeah. I'm like, that, that's the exact type of thing that Coen Brothers love. Like, <laughs> totally. that, the, the uh, unintended consequences that there's no way you could have planned for right. that unravels everything. Like, that's what they love in movies. That's all this movie is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is this is a very Coen, Coen Brothers movie. It's like scheme, plan, plot. All sort of like working in one mechanism. Yeah. Uh, and when Leo gets the drop on like the gangsters who are coming into the into his home after he sees the smoke and yeah. he's like something's going on. Like the, I had so many complex emotions during that <laughs> scene, like because it has this like really like romantic swelling music playing. Oh, Danny boy. Yeah, <laughs> in like you know grand singing style. But, so it, it has this, like, sort of heartstring tugging, like, backdrop to it, like, uh-huh. musical bed to it, but then it's like, what are we actually watching? And it's like, it, it's built up that Leo's like an old man, that he can't defend himself, but then he proves to be quite spry, yeah, he pretty jumps out the window, <laughs> yeah, gets that Tommy gun, and, like, blows away the people who are trying to hit him, and it's like, not only the two people in his home... But there was also the two people in, like, the drive-by. Yeah. And, like, he kills them all. Yeah. Uh, I love just be- when he realizes what's going on, he takes his stogie, puts it out, yeah. and then puts it in his pocket, and then he pulls it out after he's blown up the car. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, it's just, like, the it, it's... But the whole scene, it's thrilling a little bit, because, mm-hmm. like, we're seeing a, a bunch of action, and we haven't really seen any action in the movie thus far. Right. Uh, it's kind of funny, to see, like, this old man jumping out of a window and shooting a Tommy gun and blowing people away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the action's really good. It, it has, like, the little Kill Bill thing where, like, he rolls under the bed, shoots one in the leg, and then shoots him in the head. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was just, you know, I felt uh, that it was, like, sort of sad, but, like, intense. And, like, it was, you know, the music playing with, like, what we were saying, it was sort of beautiful, too. Like... It was. I just had like a bunch of like conflicting emotions while that scene was going on, and it was just a really well crafted, well executed scene. And the hit gets put out on Leo because, at the time, he's in control of the mayor and the police. Yeah, he causes a raid on one of Casper's speakeasies, um, and. The raid is a retaliation for killing the rug. Yeah. Basically. Because at the time, Leo thinks that... Casper, Casper pooped rug. Casper pooped rug. <laughs> so, it's just like, you know, like we're saying, it's just these 
everything gets traced back to a different inciting event, you know? And when you, when you start adding double crossing in there, it gets as twisty as a corkscrew. We have to talk about the hats. So when I saw this, and the first time I saw it years and years ago, I thought I was, like, clever by seeing all the hats. Uh-huh. And I watched this one, like, they're everywhere. I started marking down how many hat references there were, but, like, after, like, the fourth one in, like, the first five minutes, I was like, no, I'm pretty sure, like, everybody's <laughs> picking up on this hat thing. Yeah. What do you think it symbolizes? Well, I tried figuring it out, and I think putting on the removing of a hat, I think just represents sort of civility or maybe, uh, you know, common decency a little bit or something along those lines. Like, I, I can't quite articulate it, but there's just a couple times where the way that the hat was played out or the way that it moved, you know, like when it's blowing down Miller's Crossing mm-hmm. and the, the implications <clears throat> that someone died. Sure. You know, it's, you know, humanity lost there. Okay. Uh you know, when Tom is about to sleep with Verna, not the first time, but, like, halfway into the movie when, you know, things are already morally ambiguous, like, they, the camera very closely, like, shows him throwing his hat on the chair. Right. Um, when Leo's beaten Tom up after, like, the reveal of the affair. Uh-huh. And he's beating him down the hallway. Yeah. His hat falls off. But then he picks it up and puts it back on while he gets hit again. Right. So, because uh, I, I watched for it and I tried to figure out if there was any like specific pattern or meaning to the hats. But A, they showed so much of it, it was hard to find just a single yeah. thing. But <laughs> I think it has something to do with that. That the hats just represented a civility. That okay. while you had it on, you were a decent functioning member of this society and when it came off, it was sort of, you know, uh, you weren't anymore. Um, I see that. I saw it kind of as like a representation of intellect versus emotion. Oh, okay. And so when he's talking about his dream, when the hat's blowing through the breeze, he's like, oh, there's nothing worse than a man chasing after his hat. So it's like a man chasing his intellect, like it should be something you maintain and are aware of the whole time. Okay. Also, Marsha Gay Harden Vernon never never wears a hat, even yeah. in the rain. Yeah. There's that like rain sequence. Scene that she's in, so like she's just like all emotion. Well, see with Verna, like that she never wears a hat, like says to me that like she's really like the most unscrupulous of them all. Oh yeah, maybe. But it, it it's hard to pin down. Like I, you know, watching it and even watching it closely, like I can't think of any definitive hat scene that really. Because there's even language about it. Leo's always like, you're trying to hi-hat me. What is this, the hi-hat? Well, and then there's like, you know, the the term of like, oh, he's a man that wears many hats. Yeah. So like, it could be interpreted as like someone who's lying a lot. Mm. Um, I feel like, I even feel like the title is a play on hats because Miller is really close to milliner, which is a person who makes hats. And crossing, like double crossing, maybe. Mm. It's an, it's an interesting thing to think about because at the very end, one of the last shots we get is of uh, Tom pulling his hat down over his eyes, mm-hmm. you know, and then the camera coming down to look at his eyes while the hat's so low. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that represents like him saying like, I'm going to need this hat more than ever now. Like I cannot trust my emotions. Like, like I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I mean, I don't even know if it's something to be got. Like, if, yeah. if that, you know, if it actually means any of those things, but... 
Because, yeah, there's nothing in there that really, to me, defines the importance of what those hats are. But mm-hmm. there's a lot to unpack in this movie. <laughs> like we said, like a dense dessert of chocolate cake that's mostly eggs. <laughs> this movie is difficult to finish in one sitting. No yeast. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, barely any flour. A teaspoon of flour. Tom lets... Bernie go. Yes. He he shoots the gun that gives off the appearance that he shot Bernie. Mm-hmm. He tells him to go. And a couple weeks ago, when uh, we briefly talked about Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. and I said there's like literally like a Schrodinger's cat in that movie. Right. Like he leaves a cat in a car with a body that may or may not be dead, and mm-hmm. may not may or may not be condemning the cat to death. Um. I feel like him letting Bernie go creates that same sort of dilemma. Like, he both is and is not dead. Yeah. He is dead to all the people that it counts for, but he is not actually dead. Right. Uh, and that creates a sort of different type of tension, because then it's like, anytime he's talking to Casper, there's this undercurrent of, oh God, he knows. Yeah. And it makes it hard to then trust anything that Casper's saying. Like, was, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that, yeah. That's that's the way that I took it, because then it was like, oh, God, he knows. Bernie ratted him out, or somebody saw something, or they caught him, or... And so he's kind of playing a cat-and-mouse game with Tom? Yeah. Casper? I, I, I mean, that was, like, how I took every interaction Casper and Tom had after that scene. Just toying with him? Yeah, because uh, there, there was no way to really know, you know, if he was being nice to him, like, oh, is he leading them on? Is he trying to get Tom to put his guard <clears throat> down? Like, there, like that's what was going through my mind. Like, if he, if he, I'm like, he's nice. Is he being too nice? Is he, does he look upset? Like, I, I kept looking at every interaction they had yeah. through that lens because, like, I remembered that Tom let Bernie go, mm-hmm. uh, or at least while I was watching, I was like, I think he lets him go. <laughs> um, I didn't remember either, actually. So, and so I didn't remember like the immediate aftermath either. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't remember how that plays out. I mean, we, we find that, you know, Bernie then gets it in his head that he can use this as leverage against Tom and comes back to blackmail him. Right. Uh, so it's like one, like Bernie at the beginning of the movie is Tom's friend. Tom rats him out, uh, because he feels that it'll be better for everybody. Uh, Tom spares Bernie, even though he knows that this is going to cause a lot of complications. Bernie throws it in his face. Like and a uses deceptive it homosexual. <laughs> Uh, and then that creates a whole set, sort of set of problems, too. Yeah. Because now he's being blackmailed by the person that he showed forgiveness and sympathy to. Right. And that's actually... John. T- I think John Turturro gives a bravura performance in this in this movie. And that is maybe my favorite scene that he does, because he really plays... When he comes back? Yeah, when, he's com- when he comes back. It's funny, because he knocks before he breaks in oh yeah and i think which i think is really cute but then like when he's explaining the situation where he's like it's a painful memory and i can't help remembering that you put the finger on me and you took me out there to whack me i know you didn't i know <laughs> you didn't shoot me but now what have i done for you lately don't smart me it's just so nuanced and really well acted and just takes 
the words and delivers them perfectly. Mm, like mm-hmm. it's just it's it's such a good performance from him. The the Coens do a thing. They do it with Bernie and they do it with Albert Finney. With Albert Finney, it was like we kind of they they build an impression that he's a tired old man mm-hmm. and that you know he couldn't handle a mob war and then that is dispelled when the hit is actually put on him and he kills them all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the same thing with Bernie, because like, they make him look awkward and fidgety and scrawny, but when he confronts Tom and Tom tries to hop out the window right. and kill him, Bernie was anticipating it and like, trips him and he falls and everything. It's like, you know, we didn't give Bernie enough credit. Right. What were you going to do if you caught me? I just squirt a few and then you let me go again. He's a more worthy adversary than we initially anticipated. Indeed. There's a lot of ambiguity. I mean, the Coens love ambiguity. They love trapping their characters in uncertainty, and this movie has a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Like I say, almost to... I mean, I'm not going to say it's a fault, because once I kind of had an idea of what was going on, I really felt it's well done and mm-hmm. good. Um, but it is a little impenetrable the first time through. Like the first, Which makes me wonder, like, there's so many critics out there that were like... I read a lot of reviews of it saying, like, this is a great movie, and this is, like, people who were reviewing it in 1990. Yeah. How many times did you see this movie? (laughs) Because, like, I don't know, coming out of it, just seeing it one time, I'd be able to say, this is a good movie. Yeah. There's just too much information in that hour and 45 minutes. What makes this one different is, like, A, it's so dense, it's so compact, and I watch other movies, like, their later movies... Mm -hmm. And not that necessarily they're simple, but it's almost as if they realize that maybe they got a little too dense for their own good. Because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, their bigger movies, you know, uh, Fargo, I mm-hmm. guess would be, you know, probably their most popular. I watch it, and that one is so simple by comparison totally. to, to Miller's Crossing. Totally. Like, you have basically just, like, one storyline with, like, a couple different characters who have, like, you know, different things that they want. Whereas this, like, you have, like, a handful of very complex characters who want different things and go about it in very tricky ways. Yeah, and our protagonist in in Fargo, it doesn't change. Uh, yeah. her, her, like, her, she's like a straight line, right? Yeah. Like, she's yeah. always just trying to solve this crime. Um, whereas our protagonist in this movie shifts constantly. Yeah. Like, from scene to scene, his, his loyalties, his loyalty is to himself. Yeah. Period. Yeah. But then, like, how he works to manipulate people around him yeah. is constantly shifting. We and it's not just aligned with. And it's not just him trying to be the puppet master. Other people are doing the same thing with him. So right. then, you know, there's. It, it's not him playing chess with other people, it's everyone playing chess with each other. Yeah. And yeah, it, get, it gets real dense real quick. Because, yeah, you, you think that Tom is, you know, the right-hand man to Leo, but then it's like, oh, you find out that he's sleeping with his girl, and right. then, you know, when Leo doesn't take his advice, it's over. Like, he doesn't seem to have any uh, hurt feelings that, like, he was kicked to the curb. He goes straight to Casper for work. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of like, well, I'm out of a job. Yeah. Gonna go to this other mob boss now. Yeah. Even by the Cullen's own standards, like, this one is particularly dense. So, I got the impression at the very end that Leo thought that Tom was playing him the whole time so that he could get Casper out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, you're so talented for being able to do that, but you had to 
you had to make it so that it looked like I would kick you out, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then he's like, don't worry, I forgive you. And he's like, I didn't ask for that and I don't want it. Yeah. Makes me wonder, like, I don't think he did have this plan the whole yeah. time. I really, like, it's more that he's kind of flying by the seat of his pants and he's just, like, got enough cunning to get through it all. Yeah. But in hindsight, or in other people's views, it looks like he's planned it this whole time. I mean, not to... to... Uh, badmouth Gabriel Byrne's character, but, like, we don't really know what he's thinking a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, w- there's no, like, narrator the w- the way that there is in a lot of noir stuff that oh, gives us... God. <laughs> uh The way that, you know, that gives us insight to what he's thinking. Yeah. It, you know, the only thing that we really have to go off is, is his dialogue and his actions. And his actions conflict with one another, you know? Yeah. Even though he doesn't say too terribly much. Like, in the opening scene... He doesn't speak while, like, Casper's in the room. Yeah. Uh, it's not, like, until Casper leaves that he starts talking, really. It doesn't hold your hand. It doesn't spell no. things out neat and tidy or wrap things up in a nice, neat little bow. And I would say, you know how sometimes, like, a movie will meet you halfway, even though it's, like, still kind of difficult, you can jump on? I, I think you have to do all the work to get to this movie. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I don't want that to sound like a criticism. It's just, it's a movie you have to do work for. Yeah. And uh, it's rewarding once you do. But it's, yeah, this, this is not a passive viewing movie. Which is odd because I really associate that with the Coen brothers a lot. Like, I feel like a lot of their stories are, you can, they work on a deeper level. Yeah. But you, but you can also just sit back and be entertained by a lot of them. I mean, watching Fargo, it was just sort of like, oh, this is like Coen brothers 101. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how, this is what a Coen brothers movie looks like. You know, you got a little comedy, you got a little macabre violence, uh, you have a scheme gone awry, and uh, yeah, that's how it goes. You know? Yeah. And that's how really, more or less, all their movies pan out. You know, even the ones that don't have a scheme, per se, it usually is like, you know, someone's life suddenly is not going the way they planned or something like that. Right. In this instance, like, there's very definite schemes, but it's, you know, it's not a scheme to rob a bank or something, it's a scheme to get someone else to think that you're thinking this. (laughs) So you were talking about the humor in like Coen Brothers films in general. Yeah. And uh, one of my, one of my favorite examples of their humor in this movie is when Casper has Tom over to kind of woo him by like offering to pay his betting debts. If he returns Bernie to him and uh, Tom says, Thanks, no thanks, basically. He says, I asked you nicely. And then he walks out and then he's like, got to fight um, Frankie. Yeah. And he's, there's just like this long moment where nothing's happening. You give me the hi-hat! And then slowly Frankie realizes like, oh, I'm supposed to beat him up. takes the chair and yeah. whaps him in the face. <laughs> Jesus, Tom. 
it's such a nice breath of fresh air too because the movie is so talk dense yeah. you know that it's like it's really nice to have a few moments of like quiet and just nothing really happening for a yeah. minute and kind of digest everything that's going down um but it's also funny it's like yeah. an uncomfortable funny but um it's, yeah <laughs> definitely uncomfortable funny <laughs> it's pretty good it's good um, awareness of what the film needs at that moment. To jump to the end of this movie, and this this is another morally ambiguous part. Like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. If we're supposed to root for the hero, like, it's hard to say that Tom is a hero. Yeah. Like, he, he's definitely trying to prevent, you know, mob war. But... That's really his one virtue. So the climax of the movie is him sort of outsmarting Bernie and killing him. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sort of curious, like, is this a heroic moment? Like, is this the hero getting what they want? I kind of saw it as like, and you know, I was kind of looking at... Tom's motivations as either being from emotions or being from his brain. Okay. And the first time that he didn't kill Bernie, he was acting on emotion. Like, he followed his heart. Okay. And this time around, when, you know, he says, like... Look in your heart. Look in your heart. What hurt? In his mind, listening to your heart just gets everything fucked up. I, I guess that would make sense, and that, that would sort of play into your your hats being like higher thinking and higher reasoning. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, then like when he takes off his hat and has sex with Verna, like he knows that it's bad, but he does it anyway. Yeah, and that's kind of what caused this whole mess in the first place. Because like the reason that Leo doesn't want to kill Bernie is because he's in love with Verna. That's where he's coming from. That's where Tom is coming from anyway. Is he right? I don't know. But I mean, I mean it, it does make sense because logically Tom knows that if Bernie's out of the picture, if Casper King killed Bernie, that avoids a mob war. Yeah. Uh, now he's also sleeping with Verna. Presumably he has emotions for her as well. Right. Uh, but he knows that this is what needs to happen in order to keep peace. And right. That, you know, giving up Bernie is a small price to pay for peace. And when his emotions take the best of him, when he's out of Miller's Crossing and lets him go, like, that's what really puts him in a jam. Like, that's when things get bad for Tom. Yeah. Uh, is when he lets his emotions run the show. And, yeah, so I guess that would make sense. The, the climax, even if maybe not heroic, is maybe him putting his logical side back in control of mm-hmm. his actions. And that's why at the very end he pulls the hat down because then it's like, it's all, it's all I've got now. Yeah. I can't be an emotional person. I have to yeah. follow my hat. Yeah. You know what I found the Coen brothers really like, and I think is important to them in casting? What's that? Voices. Oh. Watching a movie, uh, you know, while it's important to watch, I'm like, you know, these would make great radio play actors. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Casper, I don't remember the actor's name. John Polito. So he's been in tons of stuff. Mm-hmm. Very distinctive voice. Yeah. Oh, those fiery Mediterraneans. Steve Buscemi has a distinctive voice. Right. What are you, nuts? We have pancakes for breakfast. John Turturro. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. It made me realize that, you know, when you watch a movie that's just a bunch of white people talking, none of them have distinguishable voices, really. Yeah. 
it can kind of make it hard to to like know what characters what or who's talking and just having like a, a audible cue like that mm-hmm. it gives scenes a different flavor to have sort of different timbres of voices in different scenes. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and it was just something that really kind of became apparent in this movie. You know, I think that's even why, like, in Fargo, why, why you know, they gave her that accent oh, and stuff yeah. like that. Because it really lets you identify a character just by their voice. Sure. I was just thinking, it's so interesting to have the role of homosexuality in this movie is less about character judgment and more about plot twistiness Mm -hmm. which is even though all the gay characters die in this spoiler alert um it's kind of refreshing to not have that be the problem yeah it's more like there's several times where people bring it up like there's a part where tom is talking to casper about it and he's like kind of giving him the eye, like, are you sure that you're not in love with him? He's sort of like, he's, I think he says something like, Of course, there's always that wild card when uh, love is involved. I know Mink is Eddie Day's boy. But still, I, I don't make it that way. And there's nothing to worry about. Like, he just lays it out, like, period, and then it's done. Like, it's it's nice that it's like, not used as a moral yeah. question. It's just, it's used as a plot device. Yeah, it's sort of a way to create an allegiance between otherwise, you know, characters that wouldn't know each other, maybe. Yeah. And it was have a connection. I was thinking, like, yeah, duh, of course Casper would have a gay person as his right-hand man, because then, like, you don't have to worry about a woman getting in the way. Like Leo has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's kind of cool in a way that they use that just to make the plot more interesting. And while, like, Steve Buscemi and the way that John Turturro plays the character might be, you know, in a classic Hollywood sense, like the sissy, Mm -hmm. sort of, the Dane's not. No, no, yeah. He's a badass. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, like, he's probably the toughest of the tough guys in this movie. Yeah. So. So it's an interesting uh, portrayal. They all die, but at least we have a... You know, different array of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there's two women characters in this movie, <laughs> basically. So, it's like... Frances McDormand as the secretary. Yeah, that's what I'm counting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, like, this movie doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Drop dead. But that's not exactly the point of this movie. The point is, like, the twisty plot. It's a, it's a, it's a noir, basically. Yeah. It's like a gangster slash noir that they... Because this is what they do. They take genre films and then they twist them on their ear, right? Yeah. And so this is taking a genre noir, Dashiell Hammett-style detective story, kind of. I guess it's a mobster story that they're doing. but um, And just, like, making it as twisty as possible. Which is great. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Once you, once you know what's going on. Like, it's almost... Which is not an easy feat. No. <laughs> you have to... I recommend reading the plot synopsis before watching the movie. Spoiler alert. Yeah, let it let it be spoiled because it's more enjoyable when you know what's going on. A lot of the things I read today were like 
there were several people who mentioned that they tear up during the opening credits of it oh. with like the the score coming on and the beautiful shot of the trees and da da da. And elbow? Was, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but it just got me wondering because I think these were, I'm assuming that these were all written by um, straight men who were saying these things about this movie. Uh-huh. It got me thinking about like what makes it okay for a, a straight man to admit crying at a movie. And I feel like there's a very limited amount of movies that it's okay for a straight man to admit crying to. Patton. (laughs) Shane. So I googled movies guys can cry to, and you'd be surprised what's on most of those lists. Milo Um, and Otis. (laughs) One that was shocking to me is um, Armageddon. Like That was on every list where it's like, this is an okay movie to cry to if you're a man. Quote unquote man. So... The older I get, the the more easy, easily I cry at a movie. Uh-huh. I mean, we don't all cry at true stories, <laughs> but I definitely am more likely to cry at a movie now than I was, say, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting because I feel like it's okay for a man to cry when it comes to like brotherhood or like father issues or like going through war together. But okay. like, can you imagine a straight man crying at Brokeback Mountain? Mm. Like, it's obviously a movie that's, like, meant to make you f- have feels. The have ultimate the feels. bromance. You, well, you think it's more of, like, a bromance? The ultimate bromance. Yeah, the, uh, yeah exactly. So it's like, I, I've, I don't think I've ever heard of a straight man admitting to crying during that movie. But it just seems like the scope of emotions that straight men are allowed to feel at movies is so limited. You know, they should they should reframe what's going on in Brokeback Mountain. It's not two gay cowboys. It's two men sharing each other's strength. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we might get some tears in the audience. <laughs> anyway, it was just something I was thinking about, like, when is it okay? Quote, unquote, okay. And, like, who decides what, what which of these movies is okay? Marley and Me was on a lot of those lists, and it's like, give me a fucking... Was Harry and the Hendersons on there? <laughs> that scene's when, when John Lithgow sends Harry back out into the you woods. You go! Get out of here! Can't you see we don't want you anymore? Why can't you go back where you came from? Go! You don't belong here! <laughs> uh, everybody's allowed to cry at that scene. <laughs> wow, so guess what, Matt? Next week is episode 40. Man, season closer. Which means it's time for a... The end of our dirty 30s. What have we got in store? For this season's double feature, we're going to feature a director, a a titan in gay cinema, Mm -hmm. say, Pedro Almodovar. Or Almodovar, I could have pronounced both ways, I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. Uh, if we're going based off that newscaster in Los Angeles, it's Almodovar. Gustavo Almodovar, Gustavo Almodovar, Gustavo Almodovar. And that's how it's going to be from now on, okay. on this podcast. So Almodovar's, uh, both ends of the spectrum we're sort of reaching here. We're going to be doing Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, mm-hmm. capture his kooky comedic sense, and then we will be going into his harrowing underbelly of deceit and deception with bad education. It's gonna be a good technicolor time. It's gonna be a good season. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I'm excited. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Let's dangle and plug our junk. Let's plug our junk. Follow us on Twitter at X-Rated Movies. You can send us an email. Clicky-clacky-clack. X.rated.movies at gmail.com. Uh, like, review, subscribe, leave a five-star rating or other stars on iTunes. It's the best way to get the word out there about our podcast. Mm-hmm. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, tell the real change person on the street. Tell whomever you can. Yeah, because our jaw is tired, so you y- all gotta start doing a little bit of the work. Yeah, my, my jaw doctor says, give it a rest. <laughs> yeah, I've been icing it all day. <laughs> so yeah, next week, we've got a double feature. Yeah. Almodovar's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown plus Bad Education. I'll see you there. I'll see you there too. I just gotta get this wart off my fanny because <laughs> it's giving me the fidgets. Okay.